This week, we're going to examine the fifth and the final sola, soli deo gloria, or glory to God alone. Now, as we look at the current state of the modern church, it really is time for us to recenter and refocus ourselves as believers. Just as the Protestant reformers in 1517, led by Martin Luther, as we've been talking about these last four weeks, attempted to call the Catholic Church right back to the truth of Scripture and back to a right understanding. It is time for the modern church to be calibrated and to recenter and to restore ourselves with a proper understanding of our place before God Almighty. Our thinking and our living needs an absolute attitude adjustment. Now, we can only do this by humbling ourselves at the foot of the cross. We have to understand our position. We have no value and we have no position of our own. The four previous weeks brings us to this climax and this culmination today of Soli Deo Gloria. Let's recap. Let's summarize. In case you weren't here the past four weeks. Week one, we studied sola gratia, which is grace alone. We bring nothing redeemable to the cross or to God. It is only by the mercy and the grace of God that we are redeemed or that we are justified, which is why we titled this summer series Justified. Week two, sola fide, or faith alone. No amount of good works can overcome our debt to sin. We cannot do anything to earn favor with God. It is only through faith given by God that we are forgiven. Week three, sola Christus, Christ alone. Grace, faith, and forgiveness are obtained only through the work and the blood of Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life that we cannot. He died the death that we cannot. And he rose on the third day. And as you've heard a million times from this stage, you should all be able to quote along with me, right? Defeating sin, death, hell, and the grave. And as Jeremy told us last week, imputing Christ's righteousness onto us. Week four, sola scriptura, scripture alone. How, how do we know all of this to be true? Well, it's through the special revelation found in God's word, given to us by scripture alone. God's perfect, infallible, and inerrant, all-sufficient word. Yes, written by man, but fully inspired by God. So this brings us to our fifth and final sola. Again, soli deo gloria. Glory to God alone. If you remember or hear nothing from today, hear and remember this next sentence. God deserves all glory all the time. Because he alone is glorious. Let me repeat that again. God deserves all glory all the time because he alone is glorious. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, dear God, just come to you humbly, Lord. Uh, is there nothing of value that, that I have to say? God, you are the potter, I am the clay. Speak your truth. God, speak the truth. Uh, today, show us in your word our need for you. Reveal our sin. God, show us that the healing comes only through your son Christ. Let us, Lord, as we study today, let us, God, worship you. Worship you as the only, the great I am. 
the one worthy of all glory, all honor, and all praise. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, I think we can end there. Right? I, I kind of feel that way. Right? We, we really should be able to end there. If you think about it, as believers, we should be able to stand and say, God deserves all glory all the time because he alone is glorious. And that to be a sermon in and of itself. But as the Bible and his history tells us, and as we know when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we are way too vain to truly believe that sentence. Right? We are all victims and willful participants in the greatest idolatry of all time. It's the delusion that man is the center and the measure of all things. Right? We call it, it's a religion of humanism. We think, as we're going to see here in just a second, as we read the Bible that somehow the Bible is magically about us. We think when we see a sunrise or a sunset, that somehow creation is about us. While we could expand on the religion of humanism, that would defeat the purpose of today, of wanting to talk purely about the glory of God. You know, in modern Christianity, we seem to think that God needs us. But do a little self-reflection and think through that. He doesn't, by the way, in case you're wondering, in case you're teetering on the fence of whether God needs you or not. He doesn't. He is fully sufficient, as we've talked about the last few weeks. He is glory. So when we talk about glory to God alone, it's important to realize that he is glory. It is his very essence. God's glory is not about us. It is wholly and fully about him now, God does reveal a glimpse of glory through creation in the created order. And when we read in the Bible and we see the story of creation, of God's provision to Adam and Eve, we then see his provision to Noah and his promises to Abram, his strategic positioning of Joseph as Joseph was sold into slavery and then allowed him to rise right into the kingdom of Egypt to then provide for his family through the famine. We then see his use of Moses as he rescues the people from Egypt. God uses the judges to call his people back. We then see the rise of the kings of David and Goliath. We see stories of Ruth and Esther and the prophets. In the New Testament, we read of Mary and Joseph and of the apostles. And somehow, we think the Bible is about us. Right? All those stories as God weaves his desire for all of eternity through written word it is all about him if you have a bible today our primary text is going to be romans 11 33 through 36 let's read oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's think through where we are in Romans. Paul has spent 11 chapters up to now unpacking the doctrines and the theology of God. 
self-serving announcement. If you want to see our Roman study, go to our app, go to the website. You can catch up on what those 11 chapters are all about. I am not doing that today. Uh, But they have been a, again, they've been a thesis. They've been an academic study of the doctrines and the theology of God. And he ends here, right? He ends his dissertation with this beautiful, look at it, this beautiful praise and worship and doxology. If we learn, again, only one thing today, please let it be that God deserves all glory all the time because he alone is glorious. Now, we as man stand at a precipice when thinking about the glory of God. Glory is mentioned over 300 times in the ESV, and every time it references the glory of God. But I'd be willing to bet if we had one-off conversations and I asked you, what does the glory of God mean? your brain would probably go to all the things that you do to glorify and worship God. We seem to think that it is up to us to work for the glory of God. Through some form of Christian moralism, to do all the right things to bring glory to God. Now, yes, in James, we are called to work out our faith as a glory that will bring glory to God. We are also called to glorify God in Colossians in all of our words and all of our deeds. However, it is not us bringing glory to God. It is God working through us to ultimately glorify himself. So now where where does this exponential rise in self-worth and humanism come from? If you'll look at a study on the screen uh, for me here, what you'll see School starts in like two days, right? Anybody going back to school in two days? Got any students in the room? Oh, man, y'all are super flat. Okay, this is going to be tough. All right, there's a few students in the room. I can see. Um, So I thought I would put uh, a little um, maybe calculus experiment, uh, and we're going to analyze the slope of the curve here. So anybody that's super nervous, here we go. Uh, But this is a study from uh, the Pew Research Group uh, done in uh, September 2022 is when it's published. And it's the decline of the church. And what you'll see, it starts in 1970 there on the, or 72 there on the far left, where approximately 90% of Americans affiliated with Christianity. Now, it doesn't define what that meant, right? It just says that they affiliated as Christians. But what you'll see is that there's been a steady decline in Americans who affiliate as Christian by 26% from 1970 to 2020, right? 90 minus 64, in case you're wondering where that math is. So that's where we're at. Uh, If we continue on our current rate of apostasy from the church, this percentage will drop to 46% if the rate stays constant. So if the same number of people who are affiliating with with Christianity continue to affiliate with Christianity, and the same number of people who disaffiliate continue to disaffiliate year over year, Right, we'll see that drop to 46%, but it's only if the rate stays constant. The percentage could drop as low as you see that lowest line there. It could drop as low as 35% by 2070 if the rate accelerates at its current slope for all you calculus students in the room. So Christians under the age of 30 are leaving the church at an alarming rate. 55% decline over a 100-year period is what's predicted. So from 1970 to 2070, a 55% decline. 
and the number of Americans who will affiliate with Christianity. So what drives this? Right, we've lost our focus on God. We've become a society of deconstructionists. Right, we tear everything apart. We question everything of agnostics and of narcissists. You come to the concert with me last night, uh, and if you saw how many cell phones were pulled out for the most obscure moments and how many selfies were taken across that stage and across that floor, you will understand how incredibly narcissistic we are as a society. Uh, it was unbelievable. Um, just like, I don't need to know what you eat for lunch. Please don't take a picture of it, and please don't put it on social media. Nobody cares. So whether you know that or not, nobody cares. But we are just narcissists. It's all about us as Americans and as people. So as we jump into these verses, what I want you to, to do is to appreciate Paul's focus on God. Again, his praise and his worship in 33 through 35. And then this beautiful doxology that he gives in 36. Paul does not multitask. His focus is not divided. He is focused on God and God alone. God must be the first lens that we look at the world through to have a centered and a right focus and a worldview. Otherwise, think about it. Our worldview would be like looking through a kaleidoscope at the stars instead of a telescope. It may be beautiful, but it would be random nothingness if you try to examine God through the wrong lens and through the wrong focus. You need the telescope in order to have an intense focus on the glory of God. The glory to God is an essential thread and theme in all of existence. God is the author and the perfecter. Apart from him, there is nothingness. He holds the universe together. In Latin, it's ex nihilo, or out of nothing. He created everything. So let's take a second. Do you realize, apart from God, how truly insignificant you are, I am, we are as a group? First, the reality is what Scripture tells us, and we're going to read it here in a little bit, is that we can't exist apart from God. But play the game, say we could. Let's give a little scale to how little we are in this universe. And then let's think about how big God is. Mount Everest is the tallest point on planet Earth at 29,032 feet above sea level. It's the tallest point on Earth. Compare that to the deepest part of Earth in the Pacific Ocean. It's called the Mariana Trench. If you were to go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, it would take 1.25 Mount Everest to fill that gap. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't climbed to the top of Mount Everest. That's a weird analogy to me, so let me give you something better. Has anybody been in the Grand Canyon in the room? Do I have any Grand Canyon people? Man, not only are you more cultured, you are much more traveled than the first service. <laughs> Nobody in the first service raised their hand when I said, have you ever been in the Grand Canyon? Okay, so if you've been in the Grand Canyon, think about this. Do you know how many Grand Canyons, if you stacked them on top of each other, it would take to get from sea level down to the Mariana Trench? It's eight. It's eight. Yeah, I heard some O's. Okay, there we go. You really have been to the Grand Canyon. All right. So it's eight Grand Canyons to get to the deepest part of the ocean. If you'll put the next slide up for me, please. The tallest mountain in our solar system is on Mars. It's called Olympus Mons. It's three times taller than Mount Everest. 
and its base is the size of the country of France. Let's play this game too. If you take the sun and it was hollow and you're going to fill it with earths, do you have any idea how many earths you could put inside of our sun? I should take like an over-under here and you got to buy lunch if you're wrong is what I should do. It's 1.3 million earths would fit inside of our sun. But now here's the, here's the even crazier part. Our sun is by no means the largest star in the known galaxy. The largest star in the known galaxy, I'm going to spell it because I can't say it, U-I-C-U-T-I. Scientists are weird. I don't know why they named it that. But the diameter of this star, the largest known star in the universe, 2.36 billion kilometers is the diameter of the largest star. So to try to give you some scale to that, if you put that star at the middle of our solar system, its radius, so half of it, you guys are getting a lot of math today, its <laughs> radius, so half of it, would stretch all the way to Jupiter. Just to give you some scale of how big the largest star is in the known universe. The known edge of the universe is 4.65 billion light years away. So all you Star Trek nerds in the room at warp speed, it would take you 4.6 billion years to get there at warp speed. You're not going to get there, so give up the effort. But what's crazy about that is think about it, right? That's Our God stands outside of all of this, and he holds it in the palm of his hand because he created it. It's as if this is all of the known universe, and God ordained, created, called into existence out of nothing what we know. This idolatry of humanism brings us to the underlying point of friction between the reformers and the Catholic Church. Every week we try to give you a little insight as to kind of why, right, what was brewing in the reformers' heart that they, that they approached the church. Well, Rome believes and teaches that man plays a pivotal role in his salvation, that man can work and store up grace and favor for God, that man's faith is earned, that Mary and the saints and the priesthood are mediators with Jesus, and that church tradition and writings have equal authority to Scripture. We've obviously seen that is not true the last four weeks. Now, relative to Soli Deo Gloria, today's sola, Rome never openly challenged or opposed that belief. But think about it. But by holding those positions on the other four, grace, faith, Christ, and Scripture, Rome very passive-aggressively affirms man's position of sharing glory with God. Our God is a holy, righteous, and jealous God, and He will share His glory with no one apart from His Trinitarian self. Now, yes, we are being glorified, and we will one day be glorified as we are made right before God. But the, glory of, but the glory is God's and God's alone, right? Our salvation and our glorification is for the glory of God, through the glory of God, and to the glory of God. Back to verse 36, not man. Read with me Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory will give, I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. 
So what is this glory we keep talking about? Well, glory is an attribute of God, and it is who he is. All his other attributes are made perfect through his glory. Right? God is love, and his love is glorified through creation and sharing with us. God is just, and his justice is glorified through the penalty of sin. Rest on that one for a little bit. God is merciful and gracious, and he is glorified in his forgiveness of sins. God is righteous and is glorified by imputing his righteousness to us. God's essence is perfect, holy, complete, unblemished, and incomprehensible. God's glory is manifested in creation, revealed all around us, through us, and in us as believers. To truly know the glory of God, we must know the suffering of his cross. When we seek his glory in our understanding, or when we look through the kaleidoscope, we strive to bask in his glow. We strive to share his power. We strive to exalt our own newfound self-righteousness. We try to put ourselves at the center of the equation of God and how foolish that is. When Nick was preaching sola gratias for the very first week, four weeks ago, believe it or not, God brought to me, brought to my mind a physics equation for work. So sorry, you get more math. I don't know where this is coming from. I am a science nerd, though. I do love it. Uh, but, th- but anybody, any, phys- any uh, physicist in the room? I almost said physicians. Physicist in the room? Almost a phys- physicist? Almost. I'm with you. Uh, all right, I'm not either. So the, good. So if I butcher this example, no one can tell me I'm wrong. So that's perfect. Uh, so here we go. The, the equation for, for, for work, right? The physics equation for work is work equals force times displacement. Right? So work equals force times displacement. So back to this idea of the kaleidoscope or back to the idea of us trying to put ourselves into the equation of God. If you put us as man into the equation of work, where does it get you? It gets you nowhere, as we've taught the last four weeks. You can give 100% effort to everything that you're doing, but as we've seen in the other four solas, none of my work will cause any displacement for me to move towards God. Right? It's impossible. My work gets me nowhere. Now, Put the work of God in the center of that equation. The work of God is perfect and complete. So when you put the work of God in the center of that equation, God moves, his displacement is infinite. He infinitely moves towards us. So he holds us, he has always held us. He holds us now and he will hold us forever because his work is perfect and his work is is complete. Now, the danger of this self-work desire that we all have, if we're honest, right, we all want to work and earn favor before God, is that we will never see the ugliness of our sin and the total cost of our rebellion. Do you ever think about the cost of your sin? What, what, what did that cost God Almighty? Is sin serious enough to you that you realize that the creator of the universe came to earth as a man and sacrificed himself 
and the most brutal of death in order to redeem you. Each and every one of you that are believers to redeem you. There's a huge cost and ugliness to our sin and our rebellion. We cannot fully know and worship God until we worship at the foot of his cross. Beaten, broken, shamed, submissive, willingly, willingly taking our sin and then shouldering the full wrath of God in our place. For God humbled himself to be born and crucified as a man, glorified himself in resurrection power. We, through his grace and mercy, are chosen to share in his victory. So yes, the chief end of man is to glorify God and is to enjoy him forever. Yes, we are created in his image. Yes, we are made just a little less than the angels. And yes, we are given dominion over this earth. But again, to what end? To your end? To the glory of you or me as man? No, to the glory of God and God alone. Let's jump in. Let's read the first verse here. Romans eleven thirty-three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Now to understand Paul's passion here, you have to look back at 32 and you have to remember what he's just done in all 11 chapters leading up to this. Paul's given us a thesis on his doctrines and theology of God and he ends it in verse 32. Read along. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may, keyword, he may have mercy on all. That word consigned, God has consigned or he has corralled or he has fenced all of us to disobedience. But why? What was the pinnacle of these 11 chapters? So that he and he alone may have mercy on all. Now just like Paul, as we see here in verse 33, our response should be total and complete elation and thanksgiving. Right out of appreciation for the mercy of God, Paul shouts. Look at the verse. Again, it ends in an exclamation mark for a reason. Not because he's angry, but because he is overwhelmed with the awe and the fear and the power and the appreciation and the glory of our God. He says, oh, the great, deep, never-ending are his riches and his wisdom and his knowledge. Now, there's a really cool wordplay here in English for all of you crossword nerds in the room, right? And it, Paul is expressing great passion with depth and how beyond understanding God's riches are. That wordplay is fathom. Fathom is a measurement of depth. It's also a measurement of understanding. In the nautical world, it's six feet is one fathom. Right? In the philosophical world, it's the measurement of understanding. So Paul is expressing that the depths of God are beyond human understanding. We just talked about that with the solar system. Do you, do you appreciate how truly insignificant you are? Like the example of a human to an ant doesn't even make sense. When you really think about the scale of us to an infinite and glorious God. 
Read the second part of verse 33 with me, please. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. As creation, we cannot fully know God. Even in our future glorified and heavenly bodies, there, is, there will still be aspects of God that we will never understand. Our God is outside of our time and space. He is, he was, he is, and he will be eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. John Calvin has a great uh, Latin phrase to try to describe this phenomenon. I'm going to attempt to pronounce it in my southern English. Uh, so here we go. Finitum non capax infinitum. I feel like I'm casting a Harry Potter spell every time I say that. <laughs> Anybody? Okay, good. see? Man, I'm so impressed how cultured you guys are. This is perfect. Uh, so what that means in English, here we go. Listen, the finite cannot contain or grasp the fullness of the infinite. In other words, the creation, us, cannot contain or grasp the fullness of the creator, God. Maybe there's a better real world example. Let's think about the atrocities of war. Maybe you have served in Korea or Vietnam or uh, Iraq or Afghanistan or served anywhere, right? And you try to explain to me what war is like. I've never served. I would have no idea what that means. My grandfather served in World War II. He was, a POW, he was a POW in a German war camp and a Purple Heart recipient. I can read all the... He was 85, 86 pounds when they rescued him and found him. I can read all the history books. I can watch all the documentaries. He's passed, but I could have... He could have spent a lifetime telling me what the war was like. And I would never know what that was like. It's the same as we stand before our God. Yes, God's going to share his glory. Yes, we're going to get to impart in his glory for the purpose of glorifying him. But there's still going to be mysteries that we're never going to understand. Now, before you get all worked up, remember last week, I say that because we understand that we understand only what God reveals to us. But that doesn't mean that God reveals everything to us. And that's a hard pill for us to swallow. Right? We want the right to ask why, and we want the right to know everything. How many of you at work get frustrated with your boss or whoever the magical C-suite is that lives in a corner office that makes decisions that makes your life terrible? But you feel like you deserve to sit at that table and know exactly what's going on. The reality is you don't. Uh, I don't either, to be quite honest. Uh, that's, uh, to use the phrase, above my pay grade. I just do what is in front of me. Uh, it's, it's the same thing. God is creator God. And his ways, as we're going to read in Isaiah here next, right? his thoughts and his ways are beyond our thoughts and our ways. Go ahead and put Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 up. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God reveals a glimpse into his glory through creation. Our understanding of his glory is not truly realized without the Holy Spirit. Apart from the grace of God, we search in vain for meaning leading us back to our fallen condition, self-idolatry, and the religion of humanism. 
Read with me now to 34. So we're never going to understand God. God's going to reveal what he wants to reveal to us. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Why do we who are called by God search for God in the idolatry and the emptiness of this world? Right? Why do we try to bootstrap ourselves and plod ahead in our own ignorance? How often do you tell God, maybe not verbally out loud, but maybe you do, God, I know better. God, I got this. God, I know what's best for my life. God, I don't need you right now. Or maybe the reverse side of that is the only time you do come to God is when you feel like you need him. It's the op- right? It's the same thing through a negative lens. Again, no, no. Why are we such stiff-necked and stubborn people? We should instead stand to the edge of the abyss of his riches, his wisdom and knowledge, and we should shout songs of joy, praise, and glory. For the fathoms of his glory are beyond measure, for he alone is glorious. Now as I read this verse, I think of Job and his questioning the motives of God. Job has lost everything, his family, his wealth, his friends, and he's at the end of his human understanding and wit. And he makes the brilliant decision to question God, which we would all do, let's be honest, right? We would all do it. If you lost your job or lost your house or lost your spouse, fairly certain one of those questions would be why. In Job 38 and 39, we see God's initial answer. Job 38, 1 through 5. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, watch his language here, watch what God says. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who comes to me knowing nothing? And then if there could be a coffee, uh, what is that, a coffee mug phrase? Here's the next coffee mug phrase. Dress for action like men because I will question you. This is God speaking to us when we question him. And I will make it known. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And for the next two chapters, God continues to ask Job questions that Job obviously has no answer for. And then in chapter 40, God challenges Job again and says, 40, verses 1 through 9, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, And I kind of hope Job is like cowering under the coffee table like when you scold your dog at home, right? That's what I would be. I would be in the corner of the room, drool coming down my lip as I tried to answer God right here. Because look at what he says. Behold, I am of small account. I am nothing. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. 
Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn that me that you may be in the right? How often do we try to tell God we're right and he is wrong? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like this? And then all of this leads up to Job's repentance in 42, which is the right place for us to land. Verses 1, 2, 5, and 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see. God, I heard of you. I knew who you were, but now I get it. Right now I understand my place before you. And what is the right response? What do you see as Job's response? Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I don't know about you, but I like to look for the fatal flaw in others because it's a whole lot easier to see right, when someone else is obviously missing the signs of God in their life as opposed to take the time to do the self-reflection and have the emotional intelligence to see where I am missing the signs of God in my life. It's the cliche, if you've ever heard it, if you point a finger at somebody, there's three more pointing back at you, right? Or the Bible verse, right? Remove the plank from your eye before you try to remove the splinter from someone else. But then the Holy Spirit moves, right? I have that temptation to look at somebody else. And then the Holy Spirit moves. And man, I am forced to confront the sin in my own life. What are the areas in your life where you routinely question God's motives and you tell him what to do? We all have them. Where in your life do you know better than God? In the presence of God, we see ourselves for who we truly are, just as Job did, sinners in need of a Savior. The question is, do you have a repentant heart? Does our sin break us in the presence of our Lord and God? You know, I was in the checkout line this week, uh, at a store on Thursday, and this lady and this little girl, probably four-year-olds, were four years old, uh, were behind me. Uh, and every store on the planet does this. It's the most annoying thing as a parent. What's right there at the checkout line? It's all this silly candy. I almost said the other S word, uh, S-T-U-P-I-D. I don't want to say that word out loud. So uh, all that silly candy, right? Um, drives me crazy. So what does the little girl do, right? What does the little girl want? She's staring at the candy and she says, in this super cute voice, she says, Auntie, can I have some candy? Uh, And her auntie, who I'm now going to reply to this lady as forever, her auntie says, no, I have mints. And it's like the greatest reply ever. What what does the kid do? The, The little girl goes, mints are boring and like falls on the floor. Right? How often we do how often do we do that with God? God, I want or need this. God says, No, I have this thing for you. God, that's boring. Why in the world? I don't want that. Right? We are that same little girl trying to negotiate and bargain and manipulate God as if we can change God's mind. How can that be so when it is an all-powerful, all-sufficient God giving it to us? 
Do we really think that we know better than God? Do you really think that? Look at verse 35. They'll kind of play on that same idea. Or, so not only does Paul say, who knows the mind of God and who has ever tried to be God's counselor, he now says, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. This question stings just as much as the question before because it points to the audacity of us as man. We think we are so awesome. We think that God is so fortunate to have us on his team that we are the varsity team for God and we're going to win the Super Bowl, right? But look at the question here. Does God owe us anything? Have we, are we so great that we give gifts to God and keep those as a favor in our back pocket to pull out whenever we need a favor from God? No. Now, we probably try to if we're really honest with ourselves, if we really open our chest and peel our hearts open. We absolutely try to have favor to ask of God. But God owes us nothing. God's glory is again exemplified in his love and the gift of grace through his son, Christ. Now these are obviously rhetorical questions. But don't skip past the work of self-examination and of reflection. And it brought me to Romans 8.28, if you'll put that on the screen. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now I realize in the minute, in the moment of heartache, in the moment of job loss or loss of a family member, the moment of tragedy, um, that's probably an empty verse. Because of the emotion, I get it. But in a sober moment, when you can step back and learn from the experience and you can appreciate what God is teaching you and providing to you and giving to you, Take a moment to step back and say, God, you are better. God, your ways are supreme. God, your plan has the perfect purpose for me. For God has known, continues to know, and will forever know what is best for us and what brings glory to him. Now we conclude, look at verse 36. So we've had these three verses of praise and worship and appreciation and recognition of our place before God. Now in verse 36, we get to the doxology. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. If you're an underliner, I've got four things that I want you to underline. The first one is from him. Think about the glory of God alone. It is from him. The next one is through him. Again, the glory of God alone is through him. And then there's two, the number two, there's two, two hymns. Underline both, to him and to him. The glory of God alone is to him. Doxology is a cool word if you look at its origin and its meaning. It means speaking glory of God. Good distinction here. It doesn't mean speaking glory to God. 
It means speaking glory of God, recognizing the glory that is God is what doxology is. So Paul concludes his doctrinal teaching with the right place of mind and heart. Is that not the right place to end, to realize that we are worshiping the one and only who is glory and who deserves glory? Paul stands in awe of the majesty and the glory of God and God alone. That first phrase I had you underline, from him. Let's do some scripture study real quick to validate that. As we said earlier, God always existed. Remember ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created everything. He stands outside of our time and space. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then look at Colossians 1, 15, 16, 17. He is the image of the invisible God, Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Phrase number two, through him. God not only created all, but he owns all. And he sustains all. Let's look at Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So in sustaining all of creation, he also offers the only path to the Father, John 14, 6 and 7, Jesus tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. As we looked at two weeks ago, Sola Christus, Christ alone is the unblemished lamb, the perfect sacrifice. He cleanses us. He redeems us. And then you should have two twos to him. The purpose of all existence and all of creation is to glorify God. It is to Him. Romans 19.1, I'm sorry, Psalms 19.1, 7, 8, and 9. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the sky above proclaim His handiwork. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening in the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then Philippians 2, 9, 10, and 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, glory to God alone because God alone is glorious. As we conclude the five solas series, 
May you be encouraged and strengthened in your faith. Remember that our place is at the foot of infinite, mighty, and glorious God alone. That our justification and salvation are through grace alone and faith alone, given by Christ alone, revealed through Scripture alone. If you'll put the final slide up for me, please. Uh, I hope we as elders hope that you have enjoyed this kind of deviation uh, from our normal path on Sundays. Wanted to share with you some of the uh, resources that we have used in case you want to do some study on your own. Uh, what is Reformed Theology by R.C. Sproul. The second one, The Heart of the Reformation. That's a 90-day devotional by Ligonier Ministries uh, that takes you through all five solas. The Alone series um, has one book on each of the solas. Uh, and then finally, Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace uh, by James Montgomery Boyce. So if you want to add to your library and do some study, uh, great resources. But if you will, let's pray, uh, and then we'll adjourn. Dear Father, dear God, I thank you. God, I just humbly thank you. I, I really don't know another word, uh, nor another heart position, or another way to say it, God. You are the great I am. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the author and the perfecter. You are our Lord and Savior. I thank you, God. I thank you for the people here here today. I thank you for the words that you spoke. I thank you for your scripture. God, let us as a church and let us as families and let us as believers worship you in all that we do. It's in your name I pray. Amen.